Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are a podcast dedicated to founders, startups, entrepreneurs, and the venture capitalists, angels, uh, family offices, and investment firms that work with them. Uh, remember, you can like this uh, podcast, you can subscribe, and you can review it. Um, we also have a companion podcast, The Angel, and you can do that there as well. Um, we would love to get your recommendation to others to to do this, to uh, watch this podcast and to follow it. Um, and I want to remind you, we're on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Amazon, and Audible, plus on Spotify and YouTube, Spotify, both uh, video and audio. And uh, I guess YouTube is video and audio too. So by all means, follow and share and let people know about us. Um, you can find out more about me at michaelconniff.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-I-F-F. Um, today on The Accelerator, I am very excited to uh, welcome uh, Arlen Myers. He's the CEO and president and the founder of the Society of uh, Physician Entrepreneurs. Welcome, Dr. Myers. Great to have you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure. We met through the Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs. So might as well be honest about it up front. Um, and um, I, I just thought the, the idea of a society of physician entrepreneurs was such a good one and so interesting. When I, when I learned more about it, I learned from you that actually one of the reasons you started this organization was that you were really mad. And I was going to ask you, what were you mad about? Well, I got angry because uh, I didn't like what was going on dealing with people like me and like people <laughs> like me <laughs> and people like me is, uh, you know, some would have a lot of adjectives to describe me. But basically, uh, I was so the short version is uh, I was tr as a professor of ear, nose and throat surgery at the University of Colorado. Uh, myself and several other members of the team invented a device that optically detects cancer in the mouth. Mm. And I wanted to commercialize it. I just didn't want to make it. I mean, I wanted to do something with it so patient, you know, could, patients could benefit from it and doctors. Well, as I mentioned, every doctor like me thinks they have a great idea. And um, it's like game changing and, you know, all the adjectives. Well, the reality is it really is, most instances, just an idea. It really has no commercial potential. Or mm -hmm. even if it did have commercial potential, you wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. So I got kind of frustrated, to make a long story short, with trying to figure this out on my own, because I was clueless. I was like a typical academic surgeon. I was, you know, head to the ground, taking care of patients. You had written books about this uh, oral cancer, I, right? Yeah, were... I, I did. Yeah, I did my academic thing. And research, education, patient care, community service, publisher parish, the whole deal. So I wound up being an accidental entrepreneur. And I didn't, I did, I couldn't find the education resources, networks inside baseball to get this thing to patients. And after looking around and sort of beating my head against the wall and pushing a rock up the hill, I said, you know, somebody needs to do this. So we decided, myself and several other people, to create the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs to fill the gap. Just like that. So what, what at, at that time, and, and that was how long ago? 
Well, the that episode was in the mid in the mid two thousand, so it was probably around two thousand five, two thousand six, something okay. like that. And then we were fooling around and trying to figure out the best way to do this, and that's a whole other story. But the bottom line is, we launched the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs as a global international as a international nonprofit uh, in uh, two thousand eleven. So we've been at this now 12 years, and I'd say it's taken us 15 years to become famous overnight. <laughs> well, as Duke Ellington said, I used this in my last podcast, God didn't want me to get too famous too early. <laughs> right. so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. You've, you've made it clear to me that you've been on so many podcasts that the last thing you want to do is tell your story again. Right. Um, but I'm going, you've been nice enough to invite me to do a storytelling session with your, uh, I guess your virtual grand, ground, grand rounds, right. um, as doctors call their walk arounds, um, at hospitals and so on. And, um, so we're going to talk about storytelling and doctors, I think. Right. And, right. um, I, I'm very curious about a couple things. One is, um, the doctor who says, I have an idea, but I don't know what to do with it. Now, this must be, this must happen all day, every day, I'm thinking. This, this is ubiquitous. Right. At, at, you're at the Anschutz Center, which is a gigantic medical complex in Denver. Right. Um, is, it, is it true that doctors always think they have a great idea? And how often is it a great idea? Well, um, I think, I mean... Most docs in white coats, and, and I include any health professional, scientist, bioengineer, anybody has anything to do with trying to commercialize an invention or a discovery and get it into the hands of a patient or a doctor to treat a patient or a health professional. Um, and first of all, we're talking about um, about a million act practicing active clinicians in the United States. So let's wow. doctors. So if we go to the AMA, you know, thing. And that's not the ultimate arbiter of, of all this, but let's just use that as a sort of, of a test mm -hmm. case. About a thousand, a million docs. And I'd say about one to 2% of those. Now this is a back of the envelope. Don't hold me to it. Show me the data kind of thing. But in my experience, about one to 2% of uh, white coats have an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm. So that limits it to 1% of a million doctors. And uh, if you take that group and the funnel starts narrowing very quickly to, oh, I have this idea, or I can't tell you how many times somebody says to me, Arlen, I want to pick, I have this idea, I want to pick your brain. Arlen, do you mind if I send you a business model or a business plan? That's even worse. How about if you take a look, take a look at my 40 slide pitch deck? Like it, it, they don't, they don't know what to do next. And I didn't. I mean, I'm not being, you know, critical of my, I am being critical of my colleagues. More importantly, I'm being critical of my colleagues' educational system, which isn't teaching people the business of medicine and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship. Why, why which, is that? Why is that? Uh, there's lots and lots of reasons. Uh, we, we are, myself and several others are trying to fix that problem, but um, there's, there are a couple basic reasons. One is, the, the typical refrain we get when we approach a dean or a group that is starting a medical school and say, look, we don't think MD, MBAs are the right thing to do. 
That's not where you should go to learn clinical innovation and entrepreneurship. It should be taught as part of the practice of medicine in medical school. It should be part and parcel. So when we say, as an example, uh, we want, you know, we have a lot of information we can impart. We have it in the can. We can teach it tomorrow. And we do. So how about including it in your curriculum? And the first thing they say is we don't have the time because we have to teach, you know, all the stuff that medical students, and I can't argue with it. We have to teach all the stuff. We have to teach to the test, which is a whole other subject. So we have to what, make sure what that- the, the test is the accreditation test for being a doctor? Well, there's four major tests you have to pass to be a practicing physician. One is after two years of medical school, after four years of medical school, after one year of clinical practice, and then after X number of years to be board certified. So it's a continuous process of testing. Now, and so the argument is, and I can't argue with it, that for accreditation, our students need to pass these tests. And for them to practice medicine, they need to pass these tests. So we have to teach to the test. Now, they may not like it, but that's what's on the test. Biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, the preclinical stuff, and then the clinical stuff. OBGYN, surgery, ICU medicine, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the first question we get is, well, where are we going to find the time to teach this stuff when we already are overwhelmed with information that no human can possibly understand in this day and age, thus artificial intelligence and chat GPT? and generative AI and et cetera, but that's a whole nother story. So that's the first obstacle. The second obstacle, and we have an answer to that, and that is we're not asking you to, to replace it. We're asking you to integrate it and use the tools that we are teaching in the subject matter. So for example, if you're rotating on cardiology, God knows there's a lot of stuff on remote cardiac sensing, with smartwatches, with AI and cardiology, with ultrasound cardiology. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So just include it. The, sec the second objection is, well, who's going to teach this stuff? I mean, none of our faculty know anything. I mean, it's like, how are we going to train the trainers? We have people who can do that. I mean, God forbid you should ask somebody outside of medicine to teach data science. I mean... There are ways of, of doing this and integrating it. The third objection is, well, you know, we're not sure the dog's going to eat the food. In other <laughs> words, medicine, you know, the medical students, what do they know? They, they don't know what they don't know. So I'll give you an example. Like now I'm teaching a class to a, a new medical school. Um, and there are a hundred first year medical students. And, God bless them, you know, they're heads down trying to be doctors and learn all the stuff and pass all the tests and kind of get the culture and just kind of get with it. And all the anxiety of being a medical student and the debt and everything else. Um, and they're great. I mean, that's why I love doing what I'm doing because I get to interact with these eager young people who are wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and still not cynical like me. So... <laughs> The point is that at the end of that class, probably one to 2% get in touch with me and they say, boy, what you said was really interesting. Is there a way I can learn more about it? So, well, when you say what you said, you, met, you, you address the entrepreneurship issue in your class. 
Correct. Like well, you kind of, you kind of, you're sort of practicing what you preach. You're like, we can integrate it. And how do you integrate it in your class before we get to the one or two percent? Um, well, we integrate it into a, a module that the medical school has created. In this particular case, it's like a system, let's call it a system science class. You want to understand the ecosystem of medicine, like hospitals and billing and how do you bill for stuff and collect money and social determinants of health and all that other stuff. So we try to find a crack where we can kind of like slide this stuff in and not have to take up some additional time. Um, and that's what we do. And, and at the end of that, and then the question is, okay, you taught it the first year. What about the other three years? Mm -hmm. So it's a four-year curriculum and we have a, a four-year curriculum map of how this should work out um, of accelerating levels of the hierarchy of learning. So this isn't just about memorizing a bunch of stuff. This no. is about creating stuff, which is at the top of the learning hierarchy. So, mm -hmm. so back to your question, I have an idea. What do I do with it? This is what we teach. So we practice what we teach and we teach what we practice. And that's basically how we are beginning to integrate this. Now we're doing it in, I don't know, four different medical schools around the world, actually one in China. Really? Um, so it's been pretty interesting, but. What, but, what are you and, teaching? And, what, how do you answer that question? I, I, I don't know what to do. What do you tell them? What do they do? What do you tell them? Um, well, first of all, you have to have the mindset. Innovation starts with mindset. So you, in the clinical mindset, has similarities to the entrepreneurial mindset, but there's a lot of differences. So you have to, you have to say to yourself, you look in the mirror. So step one, you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, do you have the mindset and the wherewithal and the internal motivation to do this? If the answer is no, do not pass go, do not pass get $200, just study physiology, do the best you can in the test, and be a clinical doctor. God knows we need more. I need it. You need it. We all need doctors. Sure. And there are fewer and fewer of them that are saying they want to go into practice. So the first is, do I want to do this or don't I want to do it? Now, if you don't know and you're really not sure, then you experiment and you try to, you know, you get involved with different things. You learn about it. You network with people. Basically, it's about kissing frogs. So you go out and you kind of like get involved with some people who are doing that stuff. You talk to people like me and other people like me and you understand, is this something that trips my trigger? So to me, the two most important questions you have to ask yourself at the get go, very beginning, and this is going to save a lot of people, a lot of heartburn and a lot of money, including you and your family. So this is step one. Do I have an entrepreneurial mindset and what does that mean? In other words, what are the knowledge, skills, competencies, and abilities I need to be successful? And number two, can I make this personal but not take it personally? You have to be internally motivated and driven in some respects, even obsessed, to be successful if you are going to create a company, for example, and make it successful. The large majority of any startups fail, let alone bioscience. I mean, there's probably a 2% chance you're going to be successful. So do you really want to go through all this brain damage? It's okay if you don't. I mean, it's not bad. Be, you know, I like being a surgeon. It's a good gig. Nothing wrong with that. We need you. But if you're interested in this other stuff, great. So personal, something personal that you don't take personally. Um, what, that mean, what that means is that 
Yeah. Uh, most people, you know, if you talk to a lot of famous entrepreneurs, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, mm -hmm. um, they have a story and this gets back to the story. They have a personal story that motivates them to do internally motivates them to do what they do. I don't care whether it's jobs or, you know, the usual suspects. Um, and in, in terms of physicians, a lot of them, you know, they have family members with diseases that, that can't be cured. They have a child who had a disease that nobody could diagnose. They had a personal circumstance where they were disabled or something happened to them and they couldn't practice medicine, but they, there was an itch. They just need to scratch. Mm. So you, and you have to, so you have to make this personal. And now in my case, I got angry. That's my personal thing. I just, I'm yeah. pissed off. I don't want people to have to go through the same thing I did because I'm a professor. I'm a teacher. That's what teachers do. That's what parents do. They teach their kids stuff that they hope they wouldn't have to go through that you went through. So that's what I do. That's what motivates me. And that you, and internal motivators are much stronger than external motivators. Money can't get you there. Yeah. You're, you're now, actually free. Go ahead. And I was just going to say that the, the don't take it personally part is you're going to fail a lot. I can guarantee you. If you go mm -hmm. down this road, you are going to fail. That's what parents tell their kids. So how are you going to deal with the failure? Are you going to look for the bright side and the silver lining in the cloud? Are you going to learn from the experience? Are you going to put it on your failure resume? Great. Learn from it and move on. So you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you start all over again, and you don't you give up on your idea, but you don't give up on yourself. Great, great advice. You know, uh, at the risk of uh, making this a uh, culturally relevant podcast, um, uh, the Masters was just played, and uh, it was won by John Rahm, and a guy named Brooks Kepka came in second. And what was so interesting about that to me is like Kepka had dominated the event. In the beginning, and had a terrible day on the uh, the basically the final round, and he he got a birdie. He made a birdie on I think it was sixteen. It must have been fifteen, the fifteenth hole, which brought him to within three strokes of the lead. Now, that is striking distance, right? That doesn't mean you give up. His body language was so bad, and he was so it was his. It has been his first birdie literally in hours. And so he was defeated right then. It didn't matter. He wasn't going to win. He just had decided like it wasn't his day. Um, and I think that's the mindset. Whereas like I'm thinking the my Tiger Woods in his prime or Jack Nicholas, they would have like, I'm in this or Mickelson, you know, I'm in this now. I can win this. So I think, you know, you're absolutely right. But I wanted to jump back to the storytelling, which is uh, my sweet spot. I, I teach, a, as I, as you know, I teach a workshop called Storytelling for Startups. And it's so funny how much we overlap on this because I actually say exactly what you're saying, but what I, what I call it is um, authenticity. Right. So something that is authentically important, it, what you call personal, I call authentic, right? Same, same exact thing. Right. Something right. that matters to you, something that motivates you. And what's funny is in all startups, not just doctors, but in all startups, this is typically a very big problem for this reason. The founder is usually not ready or to share the personal or or not doesn't realize how powerful that can be. I'll give you a medical example. 
um, I had a, um, I, I was helping a, a company um, uh, with a female founder, actually remote diagnostic device company called uh, Diagnio. And the founders, uh, it was to help women know when they were most fertile, right? Um, using an app and using hormonal stuff that you would understand far more than I. And so <clears throat> I sensed there was a, a bigger story. This is the newspaper reporter in me. I sensed there was a bigger story there. So I asked her a couple of questions. Well, guess what? It turns out her mother was one of the first um, um, doctors in um, Russia to do artificial insemination. And guess what else? She was conceived by artificial insemination. <laughs> what a great story, right? What a great story. But, it, but you know, it took like hours to kind of get to it. Right. So you have the problem, even if they realize it's personal, it's like permission to be personal or authentic, right. uh, permission to share. So how do you get and, over would, that? Yeah, well, well, I would add that there's the fear of being authentic. I mean, let's ah, face it. Let's very face good. it. Authenticity yeah. is the buzzword. Everybody wants you to be authentic. Well, the fact of the matter is when you are too authentic, people don't like you. They, they, think you're, they think you're a jerk. They think you're a bad well, rebel. Not necessarily. <laughs> they think, no, I have to seriously. push back a little bit. Well, I have to push back a little Not automatically. No, that can happen. Talk, that's been my experience. So let, okay. let me talk about my personal, and so I don't cast dispersion on anybody else. I can tell you that, again, this is my own personal experience. I have a lot of scars to show for how I got where I am. Now, some of it's just dumb luck. Some of it was me being a jerk. Some of it was me pushing the envelope and going over the line. Some of it was asking for forgiveness instead of permission. Some of it was telling truth to authority the wrong way at the wrong time. Mm. If you are authentic, truly, you're going to get your head handed to you. I mean, you can tell when you're being successful by the enemies you make. So I, I would, there's a caveat to this, and I think it's the fear of getting that pushback and blowback from people who simply, and the fact of the matter is, we are talking about, now I'm talking about sick care. It's a $4.3 trillion, trillion dollar industry. It's 20% of the GDP. It's the largest industry in the United States. There are a lot of people that do not want to change the system. They're feeding at the trough. And this goes back to Machiavelli in 1536, who gave the same advice to Medici. Everybody wants to keep things the way it is and, and more. So in the latest example, and you're, people are going to write me hate mail about, you know, let's inflation adjust Medicare payments to doctors. Well, at some point you run out of other people's money, like yours and like mine, because we're the ones that are funding this. So Maybe I got, you know, too much of a riff on authenticity, but that's no, how I, 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 I love that riff. I've got it um, because you're we came together through Harvard alumni entrepreneurs. I'm going to tell you, I, I don't think I've ever told a Harvard story on this podcast, but but my Harvard story is I was a freshman in um, uh, at, at Harvard in 72. And uh, I took I got into a, a, a child care seminar with a doctor named who you might know named Dr. Judith Gardner and um, upstairs. So it was me, basically me, one other guy and a bunch of women. That was the, that was it. Um, we'd go to her house and we'd hear this typing upstairs 
And believe it or not, this is a relevant story. We'd hear this typing upstairs, so typewriter days. And this, her husband was just an academic, just typing away and typing away and typing away. And Judy Gardner was a pretty big star. We all thought, you know, a Harvard professor. She was very young. She was under 40. So we're like, wow, you know, this is, this is, she's really something. Well, guess who that guy upstairs was? It was Howard Gardner, who ended up pioneering multiple intelligences, including emotional intelligence, right? Wow. Yeah. So, so he was the guy typing upstairs. He was the star. Yeah. Um, but in this case, I think, you know, we all, I know I, my greatest shortcoming in life is emotional intelligence. I basically don't, don't really have much, um, or much of a filter, I guess, right. but, but for a doctor trying to be an entrepreneur, you know, being an entrepreneur is hard enough. A doctor has this, this, this other job. I wanted to ask you one other thing, because I feel like we could talk all day about this, but, um, you get a lot of people, a lot of doctors who come up to you and say, and maybe actually maybe they're nurses or other medical people and say, they're looking for some kind of a side gig, um, right. like a investor, advisor, consultant, chief medical officer. What, what is that conversation like typically? Um, the conversation goes something like, uh, I'm burned out. I'm pretty tired of what I'm doing. Medicine's not fun. There's no joy in medicine anymore. I feel like the lost tribe in medicine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So fundamentally, the conversation is, I need to do something else because I want to or I have to. I want to for the reasons I just mentioned. I have to because I'm, I, I'm disabled. I lost my license. I'm getting a divorce. There was a death in the family or some horrible emotional trauma that happened and I just can't deal with it. And so the two reasons, like I said, either you have to, or you want to. And more and more doctors are saying a little bit of both. I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I like what I'm doing, but I just can't continue to do this. I can't see 40 patients a day for the next X number of years until the end of my career. The corporatization of medicine is having a big effect. People don't like working for the man, or in this case, the woman. Um, the, private equity, uh, I, I, you know, Optum, which is this huge medical conglomerate, is the largest employer of physicians in the United States. Well, when you go to, and they just bought a big group in upstate New York. So if, if you work for those folks, you're working for the man. They don't, or the woman, they don't want to be a cog in the system. And it gets back to, you know, the Daniel Pink thing. People want um, uh, mastery, autonomy, and purpose, you know, in his books. And as you get older, I don't even tell you, people... That's what they want. That's what they're looking for. They can't find that as a cog in the system. So they look to alternative careers, whether it's independent, you know, trying to get an idea to a patient or whether it's an advisor, consultant, side gig, whatever they want to do. The problem, the basic problem is they don't have the knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies in business to immediately speed time to value for the company that wants to hire them. Mm -hmm. Sure. They have transferable skills as a physician, but they don't have a, most instances, they, not all, but in most instances, they, they just think, well, I have MD, MBA, whatever, after my name, that's good enough. Why not mm -hmm. just hire me? I mean, I know everything there is to know about nephrology and, you know, kidney transplants or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really not what they're hiring you for. They're not asking you to be a subject matter expert in a focus group. 
They're asking you to help them commercialize an idea or an invention or a discovery or a digital health product. And you need to sort of understand that. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that, that simply they just don't understand. So the problem is, the good news is you can learn all this stuff. I mean, geez, you passed organic chemistry to get into medical school. You can do this. <laughs> you know I don't know how to I mean, you know how to take out a heart and replace it with another one. You can do this. <laughs> I had a lot of roommates who, who became doctors, and I, I remember that they would go to the, um, the, the chemistry lecture. There was one really right. hard chemistry right. course. And, um, and then they would recopy all their notes over. And I was like, I couldn't believe this like that. And that was how they learned it. And it, it right. made sense. Right. But, and, you know, there's a, there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the medical culture that organic chemistry is the doctor killer. Organic chemistry, yeah. Yeah, yeah that in the small Cessna. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Arlen Myers, you've been a great guest. He is the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs based in Denver. He's also a doctor, full-blown surgeon, ENT doctor at uh, Anschutz Center, University of Colorado, Denver. Um, I want to remind all of you, you've been listening to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. Uh, make sure to rate us, like us, uh, share us, and uh, uh, rank us and all of that on all the major Audible, Apple, uh, Amazon, et cetera, platforms, also YouTube and Spotify. Um, want to thank you all for, for being with us today. And Dr. Myers, a, a, particular, a particular thanks to you. Um, we never even really talked about the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Yeah, we can talk about it some other time. We, we're going to have to do that at a, at a future date, but um, you've been a terrific guest, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. Okay. My pleasure. This is The Accelerator. I'm Michael Conniff, and uh, we'll be back before you know it.